Well, the rest of you, uh, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. That's where we're going to be this morning. Chapter 42 of Isaiah. If you're unfamiliar with where Isaiah is, if you go to Psalms about halfway through your Bible, move a little bit further to the right about, uh, I don't know, maybe another 100 pages or so, depending on what size Bible you have, I guess. If you have a study Bible is what I'm thinking. Um, Otherwise, if that's too difficult uh, to find Isaiah, it'll be up on the screen for you as we read. We're going to get to God's reading in just a minute. I'm going to introduce where we're going this year real briefly. I'm, I'm excited. It is, it is uh, about what I get to preach through and teach through this year. I'm just going to give you a sense of where we're going. And for some of you, you're like, great, you're going to give me the preaching schedule for the year? Just get to it, preacher boy. But for some of you nerds, this is exciting for you. All right, so here's where we're going to go. February through Easter, uh, we're going to be looking at the enigmatic book of Ecclesiastes. It's our first look, at least in my time, of, of a significant amount of time in a wisdom literature. So we're going to do that for about 10 to 12 weeks. Then following Easter, we're going to be looking at First and Second Kings, looking specifically at the life and times of Elijah, a prophet, and Elisha, the man who follows him as another prophet. Then we're going to jump back into Ephesians, where we left off at the middle part of chapter 4 and read through chapter 5, and we're going to go through verse-by-verse exposition again of Ephesians during the back half of the summer, going verse-by-verse, looking there again. And then in the entirety of the fall, we will get get to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, and there we find the, the Bible's uh, magnum opus on marriage. And so we will spend the entirety of the fall uh, doing a series on marriage, looking verse by verse through that passage. And so that's where we're going to be going this year. But beginning this morning, I want to spend just a brief series looking at, for about three, four weeks, how the Bible specifically addresses living in a fallen, broken world, specific issues that come about from living in a fallen and broken world. We are the walking wounded. Inherent to the human experience is to be wounded on this side of the fall. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, all of humanity fell with them. And when we fell, we all shattered and we shattered in every parts of our lives. Now, what that means is, it doesn't mean you are as absolutely as terrible as you all can be. We are not all Hitlers on the field. But what it means is that the fact that we are depraved, that we are fallen, is that every aspect of us is fallen. Our desires are broken. Our minds, we don't think correctly. We don't live correctly. Our world is broken. Our bodies are broken down. And while every aspect of our life has been broken because of sin, the cookie for all of us has crumbled in unique ways. When the cookie fell and we shattered, it broke in acute ways such that some of us have specific proclivities towards various sins and difficulties in this world. Some of us may struggle more easily with depression. Sounds like we're, we're torturing people back there, doesn't it? Um, we are trying to disciple your children, um, not waterboard them. So it would, no, some of us struggle with depression, others with alcohol, a proclivity towards that, others maybe towards anxiety. Some of us, our bodies have betrayed us in particular ways. To further complicate matters, the sin and fallenness of those around us further breaks us and wounds us. We experience abandonment and unspeakable cruelty in this life. But this is what God has come to redeem. And to redeem every part of creation and humanity. He redeems hearts. And he redeems minds. And he redeems bodies. We are not disembodied souls. 
He redeems all of us. And so in the coming weeks, we will introduce you to a number of topics that are very difficult. Next week, we'll look at depression. Then we'll look at sexual addiction, particularly pornography addiction. We'll look at sexual abuse. And then we'll look at what I'll simply call body failure. Chronic pain, infertility, these things where our body has betrayed us. And I do use the word introduce to you purposely because the nature of these topics is so significant and complex and long and arduous in their pursuit of healing that we can only just begin to invite you into the healing that God offers. It's an invitation to the healing. To many of these topics, I am not um, prepared nor equipped And in fact, it would be malpractice for me to dive too deeply into them because I have not been prepared to address them at the depth that many of you need them addressed. But I am, want to begin to open the conversation and to begin to invite you into what it might look like for God to bring about healing through his gospel over the course of your life. Because healing is indeed what God offers to us. With that in mind, I want to introduce you, therefore, this morning to the God who heals. We are going to look at the passage from which we got the title of the series, A Bruised Reed. And we're going to look at the character of God and the posture that God takes towards us, the walking wounded. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Hear God's word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. Instead, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. This ends the reading of God's holy and and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, I'm dropping you right in the middle of Isaiah. Um, so let me give you just a little bit of context to the book of Isaiah briefly here. Isaiah is writing for a people who are facing exile. In fact, he, he takes the approach, not simply of just writing to his contemporaries, but what he is doing in, these pa- in this passage and a number of the passages in Isaiah is he is writing prophetically to those who are going to come in the future, those who will be exiled. Isaiah is prophetically writing to a future people who are enslaved, far from home, a people who believe that God has abandoned them. But the section of Isaiah that I have just read from, Isaiah chapter 42, is in a section of Isaiah called the Book of Comfort. It encompasses Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah chapter 66. And here, Isaiah is pulling out his prophetic crystal ball, so to speak, and he is seeing a future day, and he is declaring the gospel to the Jews who are languishing in Babylonian exile. And he is saying to them, and then indeed to us, God has not abandoned you. Your best days are still ahead. God has a purpose of grace for you that is better than ever. He is coming to save you. In chapter 41, the chapter immediately following our passage, Isaiah calls for the people of God to give up the delusion of their idols and their idolatry by showing them the worthlessness of their idols and saying, these things will not heal you in comparison to the provision of the Lord's. In fact, for the for the ter- in terms of this particular series, the idea of idolatry could be described like this. Idolatry is anything besides Christ to which we look for protection from wounding or to help us to heal or help us forget our woundedness. 
Idolatry for the sake of this series is anything we look to to protect us from wounding or to heal us or to help us forget our woundedness. That is what Isaiah is calling the people away from and saying the Lord is better. The Lord is going to be a coming king. He's going to send one who's going to be a king, who's going to save, and he's going to comfort, and he's going to heal. And when he comes, the fullest length of that healing is called what? Verses 1 through 4 says justice. God is going to put his spirit in his servant, and this servant's mission is to bring justice to the nations. The word is justice is used three times. It is the end of each of the, the verses for the in these, in these verses, justice, that is where he is going. And now, what does Isaiah mean by this word translated as justice? We tend to think of justice as legal correctness, punishing those who are guilty, as vindication, as the bad get their comeuppance. And it certainly does mean that, but it's actually more than that in the Hebrew parlance. It's the Hebrew word mishpat. And the word is translated not simply as justice as we would think of it, but it's actually the same word that is used to describe the tabernacle plans that God gives to Israel in Exodus chapter 26. In other words, the plans for the tabernacle is this is the architecture of the way God has designed things to be. And so what that word justice means in the Hebrew understanding is for God to bring justice in the world means that he is going to make things as he meant them to be before they were broken. He's going to restore all things to the way they were meant to be before our idolatry entered into the world, before abuse and addiction in our broken bodies and our broken hearts, these things that are results of the fall, he says, I'm going to come restore the world to the way I had planned it to be at the beginning. And he's going to do this through a servant that he's going to send. God says, I'm going to bring my plan down from heaven, my architectural plan for the world, and I'm going to reorder all humans and heal them. And I'm going to heal all of human civilization in a beautiful way. And he's going to do this where? Everywhere. John 3.16, God says in there in that passage, for God so loved the world. Now, what that is not saying is every person. The word there is cosmos, which speaks specifically in the Greek as the speaking, speaking to the physical, earthly world and universe. That this is what he's coming to save. He loved it all. His justice is to establish his healing on the whole earth so that once again, the world will become the world that you and I were made for. And then he is going to make, as we've said from other places He's going to make all the sad things come untrue. And so let's look at the coming of the Lord, the coming Savior who's going to bring this healing. Let's look at him very briefly this morning in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. First, I want you to see this. Isaiah 42 gives us the identity of this healer. The identity of this healer. Behold my servant, it says, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. What's it say he is? He's a servant. He is chosen and delighted in by God. And then God places his Holy Spirit upon him for his work of mission in this world. Who is the servant that Isaiah 42 is speaking of? Listen, we're not going to hide. We're not going to bury the lead. The servant is Jesus. That's who this is. Jesus came as a servant into this world. Matthew 20, verses 28, Jesus says it himself. He says, I came to serve, not to be served. And Jesus, at his commissioning for ministry, when he goes to be baptized, 
he goes by the river and John the Baptist is baptizing people and he goes down into the water and John the Baptist baptizes him and as he comes out of the water, heavens opens up and the spirit as a dove descends on Jesus, the spirit upon him. And then a voice from heaven says what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God is quoting himself from Isaiah 42. This, this is the servant. And in the clearest, in case that wasn't clear enough, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has been healing people. In that context, the Pharisees get very irritated with Jesus for his ministries to to those who are broken and suffering. And then Jesus says this, the Pharisees are going to plan his death and how to get rid of Jesus. And then in verse 15, it says, Jesus, aware of this, what the Pharisees are trying to do, withdrew from a particular place. But many followed him, and he healed them all, the healer, the servant healer, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then in carrying on the next couple of verses, Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. This is who the servant is. The identity of the servant is Jesus, and Jesus is the healer that God has sent into the world. Now, a brief note. I just want to make two notes about this before we move on to our second point. I want you to see that in sending Jesus as a servant to heal, we see both in tandem the love of God and the greatness of God in this activity. The love of God. How does God describe the servant? He is the one in whom God's spirit, God's soul delights. And yet this is the very one that God will send as a servant to lay his life down so that he might win who? You. Therefore, if he is willing to give up the one in whom his soul delights, how does he feel about you? We see the love of God, that this servant comes out of a love. He comes to heal you because he loves you. Just as his heart, the heart of a mother, reaches out to her child who is burdened and hurting, so the love of God has caused him to give up even that which he most delights in, so that he might win you. And then we also see the greatness of God. See, the greatness, true greatness can be seen in the willingness of a great one to lay themselves down for others. True greatness and superiority is actually seen by your willingness to get low. God brings justice and healing, but Jesus comes how? With lightning in his fists and thunder on his wings? No, he comes as a baby, and he comes quiet, and he comes gentle. The world's means of seeking justice is by wielding power for ourselves. There's whole academic studies that show that this is true. This is how we seek justice in the world. It's through power. And yet Jesus does what? I will lay down my power. The world seeks power for me and my tribe. Jesus says, I will lay down power for who? For others. For the good of others. And here we see his true greatness. C.S. Lewis said this, if God were proud and pompous and on his high horse, then he would not have anything of us. But he is not proud. Instead, he stoops in order to conquer. He brings justice. We bring justice via war and suffering. He brings justice through healing, through the might of his gentleness. Second, I want you to see the posture of this healer. The identity is Jesus, the posture of the healer, though. And here we're going to camp out for the longest time this morning. It says this in verse 2 and 3. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. What we see here 
is that when Jesus comes, when this, this suffering servant comes to heal, he comes with gentleness and a quiet spirit. The servant of the Lord will not be like the world's leaders or even like church's leaders who yell and slam pulpits. Some of us are known to do that. With our big egos and our big voices, but this servant of the Lord is quiet. He walks softly and carries a gentle touch, we might say. He is not aggressive. He is not bullying or antagonistic. He doesn't shout people down. He doesn't seek to crush or beat people into submission. Even as he brings justice, he does it with gentleness. He is not a shouting preacher on the street corner. He will not dominate the conversation by talking over everybody. He is not, you might say, in essence, a self-promoter. If you were you, find, you wouldn't find large photo- photographs of Jesus in the narthex of the tabernacle, as some preachers are known to have. He has not come with a quarreling spirit. The Pharisees are always picking fights. He's always trying to run away from the fights. The Pharisees are trying to strike up arguments against him. Jesus is actively running away from the arguments. His ministry is quiet. It is unassuming. And his ministry takes on a posture like this because of those to whom he has come to minister. What's it say in verse 3? Two word pictures. Word pictures are illustrations in a phrase. A bruised weed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The bruised reed, what is that? A reed, this is something like you can find at the edge of the pond, right? They're kind of brittle. They're hollowed out in the middle. You can pull them up and play with them. You can whistle on them whack things with them. They're really fun to snap because of how brittle they are. They make a a very satisfying snapping sound when you play with a bruised reed, with a reed. They might have used them for various instruments back in the ancient Near East, maybe as pens. They would use, maybe fill them up with ink in some way, try to use them as pens. Or or they would maybe simply, they would might whittle on them in such a way they can create kind of some sort of flute that they could play with. But in in any case, they're nothing to write home about. You can find them anywhere, any bog, any swamp, any pond, you can find a a reed. But this is not just any reed, this is a bruised reed. Here we have to do a little adjustment in our English translation, because the word here in the Hebrew for bruise means so much more than we think of as bruise. When my kids get hurt, and if there is no blood, I say what? Oh, it's just a bruise. Eh, it's it's just a bruise. But that's not what actually was trying to be getting across to the Hebrew word here. The Hebrew word here is trying to get across the kind of idea of crushed. In other places, it, the same word is translated death blow. This is to be wounded in a way that crushes your internal organs. This is a deep wound, a wound that is lacerated down to the core of who we are. Jesus is saying that there are those who are bruised, broken and fallen, and in pieces because of their sin... And because they live in a a fallen, sinful world where others sin against them. They have been crushed in spirit, and they feel as if they have no use, perhaps because the world around them tells them that they are now useless. A broken reed, you just toss it to the side. Jesus doesn't just snap it in two, though, and discard them. He does not despise a broken reed and reject them. Instead, he offers them healing. He instead raises them up and heals them and actually brings them back to usefulness. Similarly, a smoldering wick is a similar picture. This is, think of a candle that is burned out. All, it's burned down. The wick is all the way down to the metal part. 
It no longer does anything. If it lights, it lights for merely just a second, and that's it. It extinguishes quickly. I, we had a candle on our, on our, um, in our kitchen that was burning last night, and before I went to bed, I, 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 I blew it out, and I didn't get a good on it. And so it kind of went out, but it still had, at the very end of it, had that kind of faint orange glow. And what does a, a candle do when you blow it out? It just smokes. It actually creates a smell that ruins the whole atmosphere in the room. That's what a, bruised re, uh, a smoldering wick is. It's no longer serving its purpose. It's close to being extinguished. In fact, not only is it not serving its perfect purpose, it might be even a nuisance. I, I had a coffee pot that was like this. You ever had something where you look at it and you go, you have one purpose. We brought it down here to the church for the staff, and it was one of those coffee pots. It was a cheap one, and every time I would go to pour, pour coffee, it would not hit the cup. It would just simply just pour everywhere. I'm like, it's a coffee pot. The one purpose of a coffee pot is to dispense my coffee from this place into my cup in an orderly manner. When you spill every time I pour out of you, you are of no use to me. That is a smoldering wick. It is nothing but a nuisance and annoyance. Who are these kind of people? These are people who are barely getting by. Their lives feel dried up and wrung out. Life has crushed them and beaten them down. In fact, it feels as if life, they're at the end of the rope. They're nearly extinguished. They're exhausted. There are many places in, in the Psalms where the psalmist uses phrases to describe his own spirit like this. For example, in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, he says this, my strength is dried up. I have nothing else to give. Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5, the cords of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assail me, the cords of shield, that's the grave, entangle me in the snares of death confront me. This is someone who is in the depths of despair. The Lord, though, says he will care for them and preserve them. He wants justice for them. Jesus says, I don't stuff these people out. Instead, I come and I breathe life on these things. I revive them. I fan them back into a flame, and I make them glow and burn smoldering wicks so they are now useful once again. Jesus doesn't give up on people. He doesn't dismiss them as useless and wrecked and disposable in his sight. There's an old chorus that I sang as a child. It's based on Isaiah 61. Here's the, the lyrics that went like this. He gave beauty for ashes, the oil for joy for mourning, the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, and yet he made something beautiful out of my life. This is what God does for the walking wounded. Let's return briefly to the Isaiah context. Now for Israel, who are receiving this passage there, this is Isaiah writing to a contemporary audience, but also speaking to those in the future. To the contemporary audience, he is speaking to those who are not living a rags-to-riches story, but a riches-to-rags story. Isaiah is writing during the time of Uzziah. Uzziah's reign in Israel was known as the Golden Ages. Israel was wealthy, everything was going well, they were comfortable, this life was good. And what he is saying is what is ahead of you, the one who's going to reign next over you, is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and he is going to torture you, and he's going to kill you, and he's going to enslave you, and he's going to make you nothing in the eyes of the world. In other words, what he's saying is this, life's from here on out is not getting better, it's getting worse. This is what Isaiah is speaking about here. 
is that this is not a small setback. This is not a short-lived downturn. This is a sorrow that will be present in the lives of those who belong to God and his people and the people of Israel. It will be a sorrow that is there for the rest of their lives. It's not going away. Their best days are behind them and the most painful days are ahead. Now this gets profoundly personal when you've actually experienced the wounding that we're talking about. The day in which you look back and you say, it all changed on that day. We have days like this as a nation that we can remember, right? 9-11, Pearl Harbor, days in which everything changed. But we also have these kind of days personally. The day they filed. The day the monitor went flat. The day your child finally stopped texting you back. These are the days when life takes a turn. And frankly, For the rest of your life, there's a wound and a sorrow there and a shadow that never goes away. That's who Isaiah is speaking to. That is the servant that God is coming to give, to address. These kind of people. And God is saying, my servant is going to come and take you who the world treats like trash. Those of you who feel as if life can never be good again. There's never going to be any joy. Those who the world says, I'm going to discard you and set you aside. You've been treated like garbage. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to heal you. And I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to use you for my purposes of redemption in this world. And this is what Jesus does, isn't it? Who does Jesus gather around him? The lepers. Lepers literally couldn't meet and live in the city. Prostitutes, the blind, the physically disabled, the demon-possessed. Jesus does not crush them, but rather he heals them. He spends time with them. He forgives them. He puts them into his service. Jesus loves people who are beaten and battered and bruised, and he knows what to do with you. He knows how to heal perfectly. There is no wound or vulnerability he doesn't understand or cannot handle with the utmost care. He is someone you can trust with your most tender bruises and fragility. He will not be clumsy with you like I would. We are devoid of the wisdom and the knowledge that needs to, needed to care for you, but he is never devoid of that. He can apply his unimaginable strength to us with affection and with sensitivity. So let me tell you to this today, just briefly as an application. If Christ never breaks the weakest reed, then you should say to yourself, I will not break myself either. I will not give up on life. I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm not going to be beat up anybody else either. I'm not going to treat people as those who are just simply to be tossed aside. There's a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed, based on this text from Isaiah 42, and he says this, If Christ be so merciful as to not break me, I will not break myself by despair. In other words, I'm saying do not give up hope. He's coming, and he's coming with healing in his wings. Lastly, I want you to see this, what he's willing to do in order to be your healer, the suffering of the healer. Isaiah 42, verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Just brief exegetical insight here. It's interesting what's going on. He's doing a wordplay from verses 3 to verses 4. The word for faint, like a faintly burning wick, it has the same root word as snuff out. He will not grow 
faint. He will not grow faint. And the word for discouraged in the Hebrew also has the same root word as the word bruised. He's saying that this is who the servant will be. The servant will experience the very same things that we have experienced. The servant will come right into our human situation. The things that crush and quench us, he will experience. But, what's it say? He will triumph and he will succeed. He will not be ultimately crushed by them. He will be cruised. He will be crushed in a way. He will be snuffed out of the cross. But do you see, it won't stop him from bringing the justice and the healing that he has said he's going to bring. This has been God's plan. This has been God's plan since he first showed up to address the fall. This is what he's always communicated. He, he, God's plan since he first showed up in the garden to a couple who are naked and who are mortally wounded by their own sin, and they have covered themselves with fig leaves in their shame. And from this point on, all people who are wounded, they wound, and they cry. Those who are crushed, they crush others. But when Adam and Eve, they deserved God's crushing. They, Jesus shows up in the garden, they're covered in fig leaves because they've just rejected him, they're ashamed, and they deserve to be crushed because perhaps God's wrath brought down on them, but that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus starts talking about being bruised. He starts talking about being bruised some more. In Genesis 3, verses 15, he makes this brief statement. In one little verse, he gives a curse. He gives a curse, but with a gleam of light around it. God actually preaches the gospel. People call it what's called the proto-eoangelion. It is the foreshadowing of the good news. He goes back to the place here in Genesis 3.15 where we lost justice. We lost peace. We lost our well-being. We lost relationships. And he preaches the gospel there. And God actually speaks to Satan in in Genesis 3.15 in the very presence of Adam and Eve. And he says this, I'm going to give to Eve. I'm going to give to the woman, a descendant, A descendant of Eve is going to come, and he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. Do you realize what's going on here? Think of the image. The image, imagine your your loved ones, you're on a, a wonderful family walk, but suddenly you come across, you know, I'm from Florida, this might happen. You come across a rattlesnake nest. And suddenly, one of your children is right there in the midst of a rattlesnake, and you jump forward to stomp that rattlesnake in the head as a good father, and it attacks, and it hits your foot before you stomp on it, and then you crush it. That's kind of the image that's going on here. That he will, he will come and put an end to the one who's brought cursing into this world, to the one who's bringing about injustice in, the, in this world, in, in the midst of this world, through the evil one. But he's going to say in the... In order to do that, I will be struck. I will be struck. Later in Isaiah, he's going to make it more clear. In Isaiah 53, verses 5, it says this, Jesus, or the servant, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Jesus says, I was bruised. This is, what, this is referring to the cross. That Jesus goes to the cross to take all the, the woundedness, the fallenness, the brokenness. You see, what he does is he doesn't simply take your sins as if to extricate them from you. 
But what he does is he takes all of you, which is why in Colossians and other places in the New Testament says, there you were put to death. You were put to death. Along with all of your sins, your sinfulness, and all the sins done to you, and all the consequences of your sin, he took that in his flesh, and he was bruised for us. Jesus says, I was bruised so that I can now come. There's nothing in the way of me healing your bruises. We deserve to get pounded by the world, maybe not, but by God, yes, But he came and took the bruises that we deserved. He took the bruises of the serpent, the curse that he poured out. He took the poison of the curse so that you and I get to go free. He took our bruises so that now you who are bruised can finally heal. So he is the healer. He is the healer of souls and bodies. Two brief applications to close this morning. One, would you put yourself under his care? I encourage you to discuss what that might mean for you specifically. What does it look like to put yourself under the care of Jesus? Jesus will give you specifically what you need for healing far better than I can. I want you to understand what we're about to walk into for the next couple weeks are going to be serious and heavy things. And I have maybe 40, 45 minutes. Or if I'm really being liberal with myself, 50. Don't tell the child care workers that though. But I'm going to be forced to paint with a broad brush. Time and equipping and the realities of speaking to a varied group of people, I cannot hope to speak to every single unique need in this room. But you know who can? The Spirit of God can. He comes to bring healing and he brings it in the specific ways in which you need. You know what a good doctor does? A good doctor does not walk in the room and just go, yeah, yeah, okay, this is what I give. I, I give this, this amount of penicillin to everybody. Hey, you know, hey, just open your mouth, take a clump of medicine and just throw it in there. This is what I give to everybody. No. What does he do? He measures your height and your weight and your age and your gender and and the symptoms and says, this is how I need to care for you. Did you know that God calls himself the healer? He is the good doctor, and this is what he does. You you can see it even at the very end of John. The very end of John, when everyone is struggling over the death of Jesus, and they can't seem to wrap their mind around the resurrection, here's how God responds to each of them. John the thinker gets evidence. Mary the lover gets called by name. Thomas the doubter gets to touch Jesus physically. And Simon the Peter, who is so full of himself, gets laid low, but then forgiven by Jesus. The specific healing he provides to each. And so would you put yourself under his care? What would it look like to maybe simply say to him this afternoon, God, I submit to you. I'm not sure what your care looks like, but would you bring it? Second, take hope. Take hope, dear hearts. His pursuit of healing will not end until you are whole again. Did you see verse 4? Did you see verse 4? He will not stop until he has cared for us and heals us. Until he has brought justice. Until he has made all the sad things untrue. Until he has returned you to the way that you were designed to be. He does not stop until justice is done. In other words, he is a motivated and unstoppable physician. The suffering servant assures that the truest thing about your future is not decline and death and despair, but the truest thing about your future is triumph and resurrection. And the great thing is that this is true even when you and I don't feel it. Because some of the things that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, you will not feel very good about. If you wrestle with depression, it is by nature and by definition long. 
long. So the suffering servant will not grow weak and faint and discouraged until he has accomplished his job. He will get it done. He's the one who gets it done. There's a little book by some pastors who went to interview some modern-day sages. They went to have, so it's kind of little articles from various interviews with various prominent pastors, Eugene Peterson, J.I. Packer, of this sort. But in the course of the interviews, they also added somebody else who was not very well-known, a pastor and his wife named Rita, James and Rita. Rita had Alzheimer's. She was taking, during the course of this interview that they had with this couple, she was taking her second or third nap during the interview. She would simply get up without a word and retreat to another bedroom and lay down to sleep. And so in one of those interludes where she stepped away to take a nap, they were continuing to have a conversation with James, and he was able to speak more freely for a moment, and he said this, you know what Rita is most afraid of? She's most afraid that she'll forget Jesus. That's what she fears more than anything else. But then James said this, as a pastor to his own wife, he says, but I keep reminding her that that is not what matters. What matters is that Jesus always remembers you. Do not despair. Put yourself under his care. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we walk very purposely for the next couple of weeks to face the valley of the shadow of death, as we very purposely acknowledge that we are the, the walking wounded and perhaps begin to listen to an invitation to address um, very deep griefs that have been in our lives for a very long time. Griefs that we have been afraid to touch because they're too painful. They're simply there oozing and stinking and laying us low. God, I, I just pray that we would submit ourselves to your sensitivity. I pray that you would, as you've promised and, and claimed by the display of your character in this text and in the cross, that you would come with, with a tender touch, with quietness. And in that, Lord, would you bring deep healing, the deep healing that our souls so desperately need, that you would set us free so that we might burn a fire as a means for your glory and for the proclamation of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.